Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Yad Gavi Helm from the Institut de Genomique Fonctionnelle de Lyon on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD in 2009 from the CEA Saclay under the supervision of Julie Soturina. I hope that's pronounced correctly. Um, you then moved to the EMBL in Heidelberg to do a postdoc with Eileen Furlong. And since 2017, you are group leader at the IGFL in Lyon. Um, a question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, hello, Stefan. So um, I guess I wasn't really destined to be a scientist originally. I come from a family of music musicians, actually. Uh, so I was kind of pushed as a kid to do musics, but... Somehow, I don't know, I got interested into science, maybe partly because of some famous TV shows that were running in France about science and that I really liked. And partly because my aunt is um, was studying at the time uh, pharmacy, pharmaceutical sciences, and she was babysitting me. So I was helping her to learn uh, <laughs> her courses and And so I, I guess I got interested into it like that. And then, yeah, then through school, I had very great biology teacher um, in high school that I really liked. And then at first I was more interested into medicine, but then I realized that actually I really wanted to understand what is going on, like really the science of it, not just uh, curing people or, or knowing about disease. And yeah, I guess I went into it a bit naively. Uh, at first, I really didn't want to do a PhD or anything. I just you know, studied biology and then I continued, continued. Okay, let's do a PhD and postdoc. And then, yeah, it happened like that. I didn't really plan any of it, actually. And now you are stuck there because you cannot go back. Yeah. <laughs> But I like it, so it's okay. So we... we Yeah, um, you also mentioned that uh, yeah, your family has an art background and um, on the show many people mentioned that um, there was kind of a decision between science and art um, that they had to mm -hmm. take, right? There's either the one side or the other side. Do you see any parallels between science and art? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's uh, about creativity, I guess. This is super important. And I mean, although I have to say that I am a very poor musician, I love listening to music. <laughs> But uh, the creativity of it and um, you know, the free spirit that you need as an artist, I think, is very similar to the one you have as a scientist. And I remember also when I was in school, I had a teacher, a math teacher, that told me that uh, actually the students who came from an artistic background, especially uh, from musicians, they were really good at math because, uh, you know, music is actually math. So <laughs> there is also a parallel there. Maybe. Yeah, so coming to your science uh, that centers around enhanced promoter interactions in Drosophila embryogenesis, mm, I want to start in the year 2008. Um, there you were first author on a paper investigating uh, the transcription factor TF2S. Um, what did you find there about the function of TF2S? 
Yeah, so that started actually um, very differently. So I was a master's student at the time in the, the lab where I did my PhD. And my little project was first to set up Chip Chip in the lab because it was the first time we were doing it. And I mean, at the time, it was not even sequencing, you know, it was microarrays and <laughs> all of that. So I set that up and then we said, okay, we were interested in uh, uh, transcription initiation in yeast. And um, there was this protein that is called TF2S, which is a general transcription factor of the RNA polymerase 2. And it's uh, involved in uh, releasing the pose of RNA polymerase 2 when it uh, hits a barrier or if it's posed somewhere during transcription. And we wanted to see whether TF2S somehow follows the location of RNA polymerase 2 throughout the genome. And that's what we thought we were going to look for. And I did the experiment. Uh, at the beginning, it was really difficult because, well, first was the first time we were doing chip chip, and it was the first time we were analyzing this type of data. So I had no clue how to do it. I had this big Excel sheet, which I didn't know <laughs> what to do with, how to analyze. So uh, I went actually for a course also in uh, Cold Spring Harbor to learn how to do bioinformatics, uh, R and bioconductor and all of that. So I started analyzing the data. And the first thing that struck me was that I didn't see the highest enrichment of TF2S on POL2 genes, but rather on POL3 genes, which we didn't expect at all. And at first I thought it was an artifact or I did a mistake or something. So I discussed with my supervisor, okay, what is going on? But it seemed really real. <laughs> and so that's how we kind of discovered that uh, TF2S could also have a function in RNA POL3 transcription. And yeah, then I wanted to follow this up. So we teamed up with some biochemists that were working in the same institute and they taught me how to do protein purification, in vitro transcription assays. And I learned a lot of things like this. And we dig into that um, role of TF2S in poultry transcription a bit more. And in the end, we had a very nice story, which I was happy <laughs> as a PhD student. So that was so really nice. So TF2S is rather a transcription factor for POL3 than for POL2? No, it's for both. Okay. It has also, of course, a very important role for Paul too, but that was the first time we discovered okay. it also has a pretty similar, or at least a role in Paul 3 transcription as well. So what is then the difference between those transcription factors that are named like TF2 and a letter uh, to other transcription factors like BRD4 or others? Um, well, the ones that are called the TF uh, something, it's for uh, general transcription factors, basically. So those are really the core transcription factors that are bound on the pre-initiation complex, uh, at the pre-initiation complex with POL2 to start transcription. But then you have all the other transcription factors, which could be more tissue specific and time point specific that are really there to regulate transcription more finely in specific cells at specific times. So during my PhD, I was working with yeast. So that level of regulation was maybe not so important. That's also why then for my postdoc, I wanted to move to a, a multicellular organism to go more into that fine level of regulation. Yeah, let's let's go to your postdoc work. You switched gears a little bit uh, away from yeast and you started to work on enhancer loops. 
uh, mainly. Mm -hmm. And this is where you started yeah, to dig into enhancers, enhancer loops, uh, etc. And uh, your first publication directly landed in Nature, which is uh, great to see. <laughs> so what did you learn about enhancer loops in development in this study? Yeah, so as I said, I wanted to remain in the field of transcription regulation, and I also love genomics. Um, so I wanted to continue and learn more into that direction. So I went to the MBL in the lab of Eileen Tholong, and I thought she had a very cool model uh, working on the embryogenesis of Clozophila. So I was really happy to learn how to use this new model organism and have a really a model which is a developmental model where you can look at regulation in time and in space. And uh, when we were discussing at first uh, what projects I should work on, uh, she told me, oh, did you hear about this new method like 3C uh, chromosome co-fermation capture? Uh, at the time I didn't, and then I looked into it and I oh, that looks cool. Okay, maybe there is something we could do there. So it was very confusing at the very beginning because there were these multiple methods that uh, emerged. There was 3C, 4C, 5C, all these Cs, and we didn't really know which one is the best, what we should do. So um, I was really lucky at EMBL that we have a lot of conferences that are organized there, and I, I guess you've been to many of them. Um, And there was uh, one conference, I don't remember exactly which one it was, but something on transcription. And there was Job Decker that was there and multiple other people who have been doing uh, 3C, 4C, 5C types of experiments. So we discussed with them to have their opinion. And then we finally decided that maybe 4C was the way to go because we wanted to look at um, chromatin organization more localized around enhancers. So we wanted to know what are the target genes of enhancers, what are they interacting with at a higher resolution. And that that was like 4C was really the perfect method for that. So you and, really need to so sorry to interrupt you, yeah, but you really need to know what you're looking for when picking one of those uh, C uh, techniques, right? So uh, it's it's really important to have a clear um, vision of your project uh, to pick the right one or you're just exactly. a high C nowadays <laughs> well uh, I think even even now uh, with high C you will never have the resolution that you have with 4C so with 4C okay. you start from one region you are interested in in our case it was an enhancer and you will see all the regions that interact with it in the whole genome at a rather high resolution, which is important for flies because the genome is, is smaller and more compact than mammals. So very often, actually, the target promoters are really close. So you want to be able to capture those. With HiC, uh, you would need to sequence very, very, very deeply if you want to have a high resolution. And I think you would still not reach the resolution of 4C. Now, very recently, some other methods came out, like MicroC, for example, that uses micrococal nuclease instead of restriction enzymes to cut the chromatin. And now this starts to be compar comparable to 4C. But at the time, 4C really seemed like the method of choice. The only problem being that you need to do one 4C experiment for every region you are interested in. So in our case, every enhancer you are interested in. And we wanted to have a rather global view of the enhancer interactome. So we picked actually 100 enhancers <laughs> to look at. So I did 100 <laughs> 4C experiments in parallel. That was a lot of work. 
Um, later on, there was a um, um, capture C, another method that came out where you could kind of in, in parallel look at multiple regions at once. That would have been maybe much more clever to do, but it didn't exist at the time. So I did 100 first experiments in um, Drosophila, exper uh, Drosophila embryos at two different time points during early embryogenesis. I think one was three to four hours after egg lay. This is um, basically at the time of gastrulation when the mesoderm is still not specified. And six to eight hour, which is after gastrulation, when the mesoderms become specified into somatic, visceral, and cardiac mesoderm. And so in the team of Eileen, people were quite interested about the mesoderm. So I did these experiments also both in the whole embryo, but also by sorting specifically mesodermal cells to have a more tissue-specific view of these interactions. So did, did you it, do 104C experiments for each of those, or was it 104C experiments in total? For each of those. <laughs> I see. So we are at 400 exp 4C experiments now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, luckily you can do that in 96 well plates and okay. it's not as bad as it sounds. But especially for the mesoderm-specific um, experiments, we had to... So we, we actually developed a couple of years before a method that is called the BITS chip for sorting specifically mesodermal cells using fact sorting. Uh, it was first applied to ChIP-seq experiments, and then I applied it to 4C. And so that was a lot of fact sorting coming very early in the morning to dissociate your cells, stain them, then uh, pass them to the facts the whole day, and then prepare the 4C library. So it was quite a lot of work, this is for sure. But I mean, in the end, we had also very nice results. So that was really gratifying. Because, yeah. yeah. What did what did you find there? So um, about the enhancer loops in the different stages. Yeah. So we had several uh, questions. First, we wanted to know whether enhancer promoter interactions and gene expressions are correlated. So the idea was to select our enhancers, our hundred enhancers, to try to see dynamics. For instance, having enhancers for which the putative target gene would be off at the early time point and then on at the later time point or the other way around. So you combined it off. with RNA-seq? Yeah, we already had RNA-seq okay. at those different stages. So we used like RNA-seq, um, histone modification, transcription factor binding info that we had already in our system. So that's the nice thing also working with Drosophila embryos that quite a lot of data is already available. And so that's how we chose the enhancers. We wanted to see if there is dynamics in interactions and whether those this dynamic was correlated with the dynamic of transcription, basically. And we were really surprised to find that that was not really the case. Uh, again, it feels like this is a pattern with me that <laughs> I have a result and it seems like this is absolutely not what we were expecting. And at first... Uh, we were questioning whether the results were true, whether there wasn't a problem in the analysis or, or anything. But uh, around the same time, there was also another paper from the team of Bing Ren that came out that suggested a little bit the same thing, that enhancer promoter interactions are maybe more stable than what we thought and that they could be formed even before a gene is expressed. And so this is what we found. Actually, we had... Uh, um, I think around 20 cases where 
we had a gene that was off at the earlier time point and on at the later time point. And we saw that the interaction was actually already present at the earlier time point where the gene was not expressed. And so then we, we were digging a bit more into all the data that was available. And we saw that actually at this earlier time point, there is already a peak of RNA polymerase 2 by ChIP-seq. And there is also some nascent transcripts that are already being produced. So this really suggests that at the early time point, the gene is posed. So this is known actually that during early embryogenesis in the fly, a lot of genes are posed and they will start transcription a little bit later. So that posing meaning that RNA polymerase 2 is at the promoter. It can transcribe some small uh, non-coding transcripts, but it's not starting to go into elongation yet. And it seems that those stable interactions that we could identify, they are associated with the posing of RNA polymers to add the promoter. So this is basically a mechanism to already be competent of transcription, right? So that it goes faster, maybe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was the hypothesis yeah. that maybe because fly embryogenesis is very quick and the cell cycle is quite fast. You need to be able to start transcription as quickly as possible at the right time. So everything is kind of set up. Maybe you are just waiting for one additional transcription factor to come in and then start transcription elongation. So did you also find an enhancer that did not have like a promoter-enhancer interaction at the first stages and then there was like an interaction coming later in the stages but you didn't see the transcription starting because maybe you didn't look far enough or were like all enhancers already like the interaction was already established uh i'm not sure i got your question say that again. so you you say that um yeah when transcription starts um, in, in the stages during development, then the promoter uh, promote enhancer interaction was already established and pr uh, polymerase was there. But was there also a case where the uh, connection was made, uh, was established during uh, development? Okay. Or I mean, at a later stage? At a later stage, cases, maybe. Yeah. So there were also a few cases where those interactions were indeed dynamic and formed when the gene was being expressed. Um, in the end, although it seems like doing 104 CDIRs is a lot, for statistics, it's yeah, okay. not yeah. that much. So I, if I remember correctly, out of all the data, we had, I think, 6% of our interactions that were dynamic. Okay. And we tried to look into those if there is anything special about them. And it was not so clear. And again, the numbers were not big enough to do proper statistics. So I have to say that even still now, we don't really know why some enhancer promoter interactions are stable while others are dynamic. Okay. Um, and in other seed stems, the same thing also is true. I mean, in mammals, there are also cases where people do see stable interactions like what we saw. And uh, in other times or other types of cells or at different time points during development, you do see also a lot of dynamics sometimes. So I think we still don't really understand why sometimes this is stable and sometimes mm. this is so dynamic. Yeah. Another question I think that is circulating lately is how genome topology, chromatin architecture and gene expression, expression meaning transcription, are linked together. Um, you also did some work in this area. Um, what did you find about the connection of genome topology and gene expression? 
Well, I think uh, it's actually still a very big mystery. I mean, now uh, topologically associating domains have been discovered nearly 10 years ago. And I think we still really don't have a clue about what's their role in gene expression. Are they the cause or the consequence of gene expression? We really don't know. Um, so when I was a postdoc, TADS had just been discovered. And at the beginning, there was really a lot of excitement about that because it seemed like um, this, this domain, topological domains, really correlated with regulatory domains in a way that the enhancers of a given gene tend to be in the same TAD. And also, if you disrupted TAD boundaries by inversions or deletions, you sometimes had very catastrophic effects and um, misexpression of genes, for example. So at first, it seemed like TAD were really, really important. But then slowly, uh, different uh, other types of results suggested that maybe this is not always the case. And I think we still don't really understand what is going on in a way. <laughs> Okay. Um, so what are your plans? Well, what are you working on right now? And what are your plans for the future in your lab, um, let's say for the next five years? Um, yeah, so we are still working on Drosophila embryogenesis because I think this is a really great model and still also working on enhancers. Um, how enhancer-promoter interactions are formed, uh, how, do, how an enhancer knows which genes to regulate in a huge genome. Uh, does it necessarily regulate a gene that is located in the same TAD or can it also regulate a gene that is in a different TAD? So we try, I mean, I don't want to really go too much into the TAD world because I think it's very competitive and a lot of people are working on that right now. Also, the definition of TAD and whether they even actually exist in flies is a little bit controversial, so I, I don't want to go into that. So I'm really more interested into, in enhancer-promoter interactions, how these interactions are regulated in time and space, and how enhancer activity itself is regulated in time and space. So I would say... Independent of TAD? Independent or not independent, <laughs> depending on the projects. <laughs> so we still consider TADs in our projects, but we don't study TADs okay. uh, as, as a, yeah, it's not the main focus of the study. So one big part of my team right now is working on enhancer promoter interaction specificity. So as I said, why a given enhancer would regulate a given target gene and not another? And would it still regulate that gene independent of its location in the genome? Things like this. And uh, another big part of the team is more focused on genome-wide questions about enhancer activity globally and how this is regulated uh, in the embryo uh, in time and space. And this is regulate. Um, this is also related to um, a new field of study, which is called uh, spatial transcriptomics, which is uh, basically a set of methods that. Um, came out in the last few years where um, you can study the expression of multiple genes at the same time, but at a single cell level within their, within a given tissue or within a whole embryo, for example, in our case. So we, we try to use the, to apply these types of methods to study enhancer activity globally in the whole embryo. 
That sounds very interesting. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to hearing more of that. But to finish off this interview, I have uh, two more rather general questions. The first one, um, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Of course. I mean, I think this is kind of the work of a scientist. <laughs> you, most of the time you do an experiment and it doesn't work. Uh, I would say that uh, having things that work is more the exception than the rule. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is actually one of the big qualities you should have as a scientist to kind of be able to endure the, the hardship of having failed experiments and, you know, always have the strength to go back at it and think about, okay, what went wrong? What should I change now? And how do I go one step further to make it work? And not everybody is actually able to do that. I think it's, it's not that easy to accept failure, both, I mean, for experiments when you are still a PhD or postdoc, and maybe now for me more at the level of grants being rejected, papers being rejected, reviewers being really harsh, this type of things. So I think this is our daily life. <laughs> We have to accept it. And, you know, it's in the end, you, you, you always learn from it. So I think if you, you think about it like this, it's not so bad. It's actually a nice thing. Yeah, so in the last almost half an hour, so 30 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Um, I think we covered most of it. I mean, uh, I think throughout my young career so far, I was really interested into transcription regulation and how this is regulated at multiple levels, starting from basal transcription machinery in yeast to finer and finer levels of regulation in multicellular organisms. And I think this is something that I really want to continue going into finer and finer levels of regulation, as I said, and also uh, the technology development is something I also really enjoy. So I like to you know, apply new techniques and see how these new techniques can help us discover new things that we wouldn't have been able to discover with what we had at hand so far. So I think this is also a very exciting thing we have in science to really be at the forefront of discoveries and have access to so much um, new discoveries and new science that we can you know, use for our own model and our own uh, field of interest. So That's really something I enjoy a lot as a scientist. Uh, are you planning to move on from Drosophila or is like is Drosophila going to be the model organism of choice? Um, I think I, I will most likely keep working with Drosophila for a while. Um, now, I wouldn't mind also using other models if I have someone who joins my lab and tells me, okay, uh, this particular question, I think it would be best answered in another model organism and I know how to do it, then I would love to do that mm -hmm. actually. So I'm really not, um, I mean, I would love to work with other models also, not only the fly, but I think for basic questions uh, of transcription regulation, it's really a nice model. So I will probably keep working with it for sure, but why not also extend to other models as well? Okay, yeah, sounds, sounds good and sounds like a plan. So thank you, Yad, for your time and for being on the show.
You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.